after 1 Timothy 3 and 4. As Vivian's already prayed for Trevor and Val, let me just share a brief message from them. Uh, Trevor was taken poorly last night, and he has spent the night in Kingston A&E all night, undergoing various tests. He's waiting to see a doctor this morning to hopefully receive a diagnosis. He and Val are in good spirits, in spite of a total lack of sleep. Hope to be home today and sending their love. So keep them in your prayers. As a result of that, we have a change of uh, sermon topic this morning. Trevor was due to speak on 2 Corinthians 9. And I was very, almost smug yesterday morning, sending out some, some questions to the life group leaders, thinking it was all done, and of course now it's not. So life group leaders, don't panic. I will send you a new set of notes later today. So uh, let's get into this passage. Now imagine a new friend at church invites you to their home to attend their Bible study, their life group. And when you arrive, they make you a coffee and then lead you downstairs into a really dark basement room. It's got strange symbols painted on the wall. Some other people from the church are there, but they're all dressed in black robes with the hood up. And they're doing this and they're chanting something in Latin. Maybe it's something from a Led Zeppelin album. You're not sure. It's a full moon outside, and the group is planning to sacrifice a goat before the Bible study so that they can read God's word in its liver. Now, you know, you might start to expect, suspect that there's some false teaching going on in that group, wouldn't you? You, you might think, I don't know, but it just doesn't seem healthy. Maybe it wouldn't be called a life group. Maybe it would be called a death group. <laughs> but the thing is, false teaching doesn't usually look like that. Probably never. Usually it's very subtle and attractive. False teaching in the Christian church can actually look like a positive course correction. Oh, if only we'd always known this, life would have been so much easier. False teaching. And no church is perfect, is it? No church is perfect. After all, you're in it. And so am I. The new teaching that seems to offer some higher path can be very appealing with all our imperfections. And as a result, the Apostle Paul takes false teaching with deadly seriousness. He writes to his team member, his delegate, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus. And this letter is his instruction manual. Now, one of the first, excuse me, first things that Timothy had to do was build the church's leadership. And so uh, Paul wrote this textbook description of what church leaders should look like at the beginning of chapter 3. A trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now in the New Testament, the word overseer and the word bishop and the word elder are all interchangeable for a plural group of suitably qualified men who are to lead the local congregation. So the, in the beginning of this chapter, he gives like the, the, the textbook list of what an elder should look like. It's the criteria. And then he moves on to talk about deacons. Another word for deacon is a servant. But it appears that it was an office in the church for, again, qualified, godly people who were known in the church who would lead in its works of service and mercy. And it again appears that they were both male and female. 
deacons and deaconesses. Now, these leaders have godly character. The most important thing about them is their character. They have a home life that you could look at and say it's an example. It's not perfect, but it is an example to us of what a Christian home should be like. They've got a disposition that's gracious towards other people. They've got the right kind of experience. They're not brand new Christians. They've got a good reputation with people outside the church because the church will be judged by the outsiders on the quality of its leaders. These leaders have got integrity. If they were standing for election, they would get our vote. And these are just the kind of leaders that churches need. That's the beginning of chapter 3. Now Paul rounds up his description uh, of these Christian leaders in verses 14 to 15. And he says, I'm, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Listen to this description of, of the church. How people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. There's three images there that are really very powerful. The the local church is God's house. It's It's a household word. An astonishing thought that this church is actually God's family home. We're invited in to be his children and eat at his table. Now, the two other images are also surprising. It says that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, or the buttress of the truth. And that sounds like he's got it the wrong way around, frankly. How can the church be the pillar of the truth? Surely the church is standing on the truth. Now, the image he's got in mind is of something that holds something up and shows it to the world around. A pillar, a support that holds up God's truth for everyone to see. In our culture, we might think of a billboard, a huge sign. You know, you get these huge signs by the motorway or in cities, and they've got strong things holding them up, and they are holding up a message. And the church, every church, is actually the pillar and foundation of the truth in this sense. We are to hold up the good news about Jesus and show it to the world around and then Paul summarizes this good news about Jesus in, in poet, kind of poetry at the end of chapter 3. There it is in verse 16. He appeared in the flesh. That's the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. Jesus was made flesh. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. He rose to new life on the third day. He ascended into heaven where he reigns, and one day he will return. That's the gospel, the good news that we take our stand upon. And that would be a really good way to end the letter, wouldn't it? What a great place to end the letter. He was taken up in glory. Look forward to seeing you, Paul. Kiss. Another little kiss. Hug. But the letter doesn't end chapter 3. It actually, after describing church leaders and summarizing the gospel, Paul returns to the job in hand. And it's one of those moments, you know, where somebody rolls their sleeves up and says, Timothy, we're going to have to get serious here. Because uh, it's kind of like um, 
time to get your marching orders. Because life in this church, and it was in the, the city of Ephesus, which is uh, modern-day Turkey, was less than ideal. Paul's Timothy, member Timothy, his excuse me, team member Timothy, was having to fight for the church, fight for the faith. And in this season, as you know now, we're thinking about the year ahead, and we're calling our church to gather around the mission of growing together and growing in our ability to care for one another, to be a safe place, to be a place where children are taught the word, to, to be coordinated as a ministry. We want to grow, we want to train. Steve's explained that today, training and equipping. And we want to partner, and we're thinking about that next week. So today, with this focus on training and equipping, this letter to Timothy is all about training and equipping, how Timothy is to train himself and his people and how they are to equip one another. Training in the word and godliness. It's not just about knowing our Bibles, it's also about being transformed as disciples. Now, one of the reasons why we need to be trained in God's word is the grave danger of false teaching. False teaching that appears in every generation of the Christian church and sweeps people away in error. We need to be on our guard. So I have three quick points about false teaching. False teaching is expected, dissected, and corrected. Expected, dissected, corrected. Firstly, false teaching is expected. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. It's really quite shocking, that, isn't it? Some people will abandon the faith and follow false teaching. We should expect it. And that should make us fear it. And it's predicted by the Holy Spirit himself. You can't get any higher source of authority. So there's no understand, misunderstanding. Paul says, Spirit clearly says, the Holy Spirit has explicitly stated that in the later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, when are these later times? The later times are usually thought of as the end of the world times, the time when we're moving to the, the culmination of all things, when Jesus will return. And the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches, that the, new, the end times, the later times, began when Jesus came. He started, he brought the kingdom of God, which will be fulfilled when he returns, and so we are living in the later times. We don't know how long they're going to go on for. They could go on for 20,000 years. Nobody knows. We're in, but we do know this. We're already in these last days. The kingdom of God has arrived. It is extending. The end has begun. Do you remember egg timers? probably you've got something digital now. They were great. An egg timer had two chambers of glass and a narrow bit in the middle and a bunch of sand in it. And when you turn the egg timer over, the sand started to pour through. And it's, it's time, the amount of sand, so that it's the perfect time to boil an egg. I've never actually used one now that I mention it. But it's as if the moment that Jesus rose from the dead, a giant egg timer was turned over and the sand started to fall through. And somewhere, a countdown began. In these later times, the Holy Spirit says, even though Jesus came and rose from the dead, some people will depart from the faith because they start to believe 
false things, wrong things. They get deceived, and in the end, their lives can be shipwrecked. They can abandon Jesus. It's very serious. Now, I know that's quite discouraging, but if you think about it, there's actually a reassuring side to it. There's a silver lining in the cloud. We have been warned. We have been warned. We shouldn't be napping. The Spirit expressly said some people will fall away, so we should be prepared for it, not shocked. When we hear that someone departs from the faith, and not shocked or surprised to hear that there is false teaching, but more than that, we should be prepared for it. Forewarned is forearmed. We've been given our orders through Jesus by the Apostle Paul, and this letter is here to equip us for the fight. And so a key strategy in warfare is to know your enemy. And Paul dissects the false teaching next. False teaching expected, false teaching dissected. Verse 1 to 3. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods so three aspects of this false teaching. One is that it, it's, it's about the body. These guys were saying, if you want to be really spiritual, if you want to be really holy, you need, to, you need to stop eating these certain foods and you need to abstain from marriage. And that's probably a reference to sexual relations. If you want to be really pure, then you need to do these, keep these rules. Now, forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods, that isn't true of all false teaching, of course. There are lots of ways to distort God's truth, and they don't all center on the body, but this teaching did. Now, speaking generally in the history of the last 2,000 years, the history of the church, false teaching generally goes one of two main directions. They both begin with L. One main direction that false teaching goes down is legalism, legal. Now, legalism is all about adding law, extra rules. Do this, don't do that. If you don't do this, you might not be saved. Keep these rules, and people prescribe them and then try and monitor other people's lives. And legalism is one big, big road, is a motorway, down which false teachers tend to drive. But the other way, which also begins with L, is the complete opposite, and that is libertarianism. I don't mean the political view. I mean a view that the emphasis is on liberty, freedom. We've been set free from all the restrictions of the past. We can live how we like. Sin doesn't matter. Jesus has paid it all. It doesn't, you know, as long as you prayed a prayer on camp when you were a kid, you can live as you like because you've, you've, you've got your safety ticket to heaven. Li liberty, also known as antinomianism, if you like big words. So we've got legalism on one side, we've got lib libertarianism on the other side. And the issue here in Ephesus is in the legal category, that these guys are emphasizing rules, forbidding certain behaviors. So we're going to focus on that here, but we could talk about that other error another time. So if you've come across a church or an individual who is really camping out on a certain niche issue of behavior or lifestyle, be careful. Some friends from here, actually, many years ago, got involved in a church at university. But over time, they realized it was really a cult. It was highly regulated. It put strange emphasis on a few doctrines that had to be done a certain way. 
They were pressure tactics, heavy shepherds. And when they tried to leave, it was very hard to escape. It was legalism. Now, one of the greatest threats to the Christian church, thinking globally, is a false teaching. It's not legal. It's called the prosperity gospel. Sweeping through the world, especially in the poorer parts of the world. The teaching that Jesus Christ promises you wealth, riches, health, prosperity right now. And you should claim it in faith. And you should give a lot of money to your church to make sure that you, you know, you're showing your faith. It's, a, it's an abominable teaching. But it's sweeping through the world, a false gospel But in case we're tempted just to look out there, let's just pause for a moment, shall we? Let's look in the mirror. False teaching is not just a problem for people out there. Looking back on my life, I realized that I, in a a small way, was quite a legalist at the age of 17. I frowned on Christians who smoked, drank, or sang modern songs in church. It's true. I even had a pretty contemptuous view of certain Bible translations. I was angry about these things. I thought I was righteous. It wasn't full-blown false teaching, friends, but I was a legalist. And one of the ways you can know you're drifting into it is if you find yourself becoming angry with other Christians because of their failings. You have a lot to think about them. You're quite harsh on them, quick to judge. The spiritual pride, and it leads to false gospels. So be on your guard for any teaching that adds special little rules to the gospel and then majors on them. That's the first thing we learn. It forbids marriage and requires abstinence from foods. The second thing we learn about this teaching is about the people who teach it. Look what he says. They are hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Paul is not holding back here. False teaching comes through false teachers. There are usually some people involved in a false teacher, false teaching who are actually very powerful in their own way. Their personality, their presence, their platform. But they are actually hypocritical and that suggests that they don't, they pass rules on to other people but they don't really keep them themselves. It's Do what I say, not what I do. This is the opposite of what elders and deacons are supposed to be. These leaders are not genuine. They lack integrity. If you were to observe them for a while, you begin to see certain things don't add up. There was an infamous scandal a number of years ago with a a televangelist, a man who preached the gospel on the television and made a lot of money from it when he was caught uh, in in a... a motel getting up to behavior that would be scandalous in any context. There's a big gap between what he taught and the actual kind of person he was. And Paul says the reason for that is that their conscience is seared. Now that word seared is like um, cauterizing a wound or like a seared, if you get a seared tuna steak or a seared uh, piece of sirloin, it's got a very hot metal surface that's pressed on it and it seared it and it makes it hard and with, with searing, cauterizing a wound, the wound is burned in order to stop it bleeding and to stop infection 
Uh, he says it's like a hot iron. But what has happened to these guys is that their conscience has been seared. Their conscience is actually burned. It's so hard, it doesn't feel anything anymore. Their sensitivity to right and wrong, their moral compass has been dulled. It's a, it's a horrible picture, and yet they are telling other people how to live. And that's a stark contrast to what we should have in our leadership in churches. That's chapter 3. True Christian leaders must be all about godly character and a good conscience. So it is appropriate to assess the character of all those who seek and are being asked to exercise leadership in the church. We should ask high standards of them. So the false teaching dissected, it's forbidding certain behaviors to do with the body. It is coming from hypocritical liars. And thirdly and finally, and this is the weirdest one, its ultimate source is demonic. Look at what he says. Verse 1. They follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Where does this, this kind of teaching ultimately come from? It's, it's, it's from the dark spirits who oppose God's rule. Now, what springs to mind when we hear the word demonic is probably more Hollywood than Bible. We think about goats sacrificed in basements, people foaming at the mouth, heads spinning round, things going all Harry Potter. That's not actually what demonic looks like in the Bible. A lot of teaching about demons is teaching from demons. It's exactly what they want us to believe. Make demons so ridiculous that it all seems quite embarrassing, childlike, awkward, and uh, unbelievable. So then we live as if they don't exist. A friend here at the church, Reese, sent me a quotation yesterday from a a definition of the faith that was written in 1536. It's nearly 500 years old. It was written in Switzerland called the First Helvetic Confession. And here's what it says are the duties of a pastor. Number one, preach. Number two, pray. Number three, study. Number four, Always pursue and cripple Satan with deadly hatred by all kinds of skill. <laughs> you know, that wasn't included in my job description here at King's Church. But, but those guys 500 years ago maybe were closer to the mark than we are. Because Satan, the enemy of Jesus, the enemy of the gospel, is always prowling around looking for someone to devour. And it's not all Harry Potter stuff. A lot of it comes through very subtle false messages. How do we know when something's coming from a demonic source? Often it's very divisive. It's very distracting. And it destroys people's faith. It takes away. We sang earlier on, we are the people of God and we have the freedom of hope in our hearts. What a beautiful phrase. To have the freedom of hope. You are given a hope in Jesus that doesn't come from you. You're not relying on yourself. Thank God. You're relying on him. And so you have the freedom of hope. And what this false teaching does is take that freedom away. So you can't be confident anymore. You've got to be coming down to you and all your efforts. But look, hold on a minute. These false teachers are actually church members. They're not out there prowling around with like a red mask on and a dark cape. You know, smelling of sulfur. These are nice 
middle-aged, slightly overweight church members wearing glasses. For example, they look credible. They aspire to be Bible teachers. They know the Bible to a certain extent. So it is possible to be all of that and yet following deceitful spirits. That's a really sobering thought, isn't it? So how does Paul address this false teaching in the life of the church? How is he going to correct it? Remember, with false teaching is expected, dissected, and finally corrected. He has two strategies. Firstly, he corrects it but using the Bible very, very skillfully. He knows the word and he knows how to apply it. And then secondly, he, he encourages Timothy to train and equip as a godly leader. The truth and godliness go together. False teaching corrected. Look at verse 3. Um, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He continues, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving and because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now Paul here takes a teaching about people say you shouldn't eat, it might well have been pork, or uh, food with blood in it, or whatever. We don't know. He doesn't go into details. He takes that and he says, okay, I'm now going to take, th- take the theology of this. The theology is that God is the good creator. The great uh, Apostles' Creed begins, we believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. All things were made by him. All things were made through Jesus Christ. Nothing that exists was made without him. He made all things good. He made foods. God created foods, and everything God created is good. Therefore, you cannot say Brussels sprouts are evil. (laughs) Melissa, Tyndall, you can't say they're evil. My wife doesn't like sprouts. Have to eat them at Christmas. Verses 3 to 4, God created these things to be received with thanksgiving. We take our food and we thank God for it because he gave it to us. So we should recognize God's provision when we eat and drink and be thankful for it, even sprouts. And if one person can legitimately thank God for Brussels sprouts, then you cannot say they are evil. Say grace. Verse 5 basically says that all foods are holy in the sense that there's nothing religiously unclean about food. He's probably picking up an argument from the false teachers that some foods were unclean in religious terms. I remember getting to know a a local pizza and kebab shop owner in Manchester. We we became friendly with him and his family around the shop. It's around the corner from where we lived. They were Kurdish people. They were Muslims. And we we developed a really warm relationship. And we were praying for them regularly. We would have a chance to speak the gospel. And we, we, we built up to a point where we wanted to invite them to our home for food. For a meal, we thought that would be the good next step. And uh, a friend advised us, you know, make sure you tell them that the food is halal, because they will be really nervous about eating in your house. We don't know what you're going to you're going to give them. So I went in and I, I was talking to them and I asked, I I, I uh, said to the owner, we'd love to have you around for a meal. 
And he reached over the counter and took my hand very warmly and looked at me with a, with a smile and with some sorrow, actually. And he said, Mike, we cannot eat with you. We can't eat with us. Because they don't know what kind of uncleanness they're going to come, come into contact with because we're not halal, clean. Now that's the kind of logic that goes with making food religious. And so Paul picks up this argument and he says, everything God created is good and it's received with thanksgiving and therefore it is holy, it's consecrated by the word of God. Now what does this mean? It either means that the gospel, Jesus declared all foods were clean, or it means Genesis 1, God's word that all things he had made were good. But either way, we get the point, don't we? God created things. God created the body for food, for physicality, for physical contact, for some people for marriage and sexual relations. God made those things. Therefore, they're not impure, observed within his boundaries. So that's the teaching, the theology part. But notice he doesn't stop there. He also turns to the leader, Timothy, and he talks about his character and training him. Uh, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time going into detail with these false teachers. He wants to equip Timothy to deal with false teaching by being a godly man. And notice what he says in verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Put these things before the church, he says. Don't chicken out. Make it clear. Be strong, robust. Put the teaching forward. And for Timothy, that would mean personal opposition. And how can he be strong to do it? By being trained, nourished on the truths himself. In the words of the faith, the good teaching that he's followed. And verse 7 says this. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Old wives' tales, no offense to any old wives here. We're so glad you're with us. But old wives' tales refers to superstitious chatter, kind of superstitions, rumors, things that people believe because they heard it from their mum. No, he says, don't have anything to do with that. And these godless myths, this, this is the Greek world. Turkey, it was full of stories about the legendary the gods and these kind of stories are a characteristic of false teachers. Speculation about the gods. He says, don't have anything to do with it. Nourish yourself in the truths of the word of God. So this is how Paul will protect the church from false teaching, critique it from scripture, and focus on a positive training lead. The church of Jesus Christ is built by training and equipping for all of us. Timothy is to train himself, verse 8. A verse I uh, cling to because I've never been part of a gym. Physical training is of some value, but not that much, guys. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both the present life and the life to come. Notice what this shows us about training and equipping. It's not simply academic it's not dry. It's not trying to make us highly educated people who know all the details. Its purpose is that we grow to be more like Jesus. 
That's the reason for us being trained in the word, is to become godly, mature, have the character that God wants from us. In other words, to become more and more like Jesus. So Paul here is Timothy's personal trainer. This letter is the exercise manual. And Timothy's training is not just for himself, but for everyone, the whole body, so that we all build each other up as every joint and supporting ligament does its work so that we all strengthen one another in godliness. So I'm really excited about what we're going to do next year to build one another up and be equipped. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we just thank you for your word and for its honesty, its reality, and how it is training and equipping us to change, to be transformed into disciples of Jesus. I pray for Steve, particularly as he leads on this, building on this work for next year. I ask that you'd really equip him and nourish him on the truths of the faith and give us many opportunities to grow together. Amen.